Well, for the second week in a row, uh, we're exploring the permissibility of divorce from Matthew 19, 1 to 12. If you would, please turn there in your Bibles. Again, that's Matthew 19, 1 to 12. Uh, divorce is a prevalent issue in our nation. Uh, you've probably heard somewhere along the way that half of all marriages end in divorce. That's actually not true. Uh, the actual divorce rate for new marriages has probably it probably peaked somewhere around 40 to, at around 40% in the 70s and 80s. It's been improving. Uh, estimates are, are at around 30% or so for new marriages today. Uh, even still, that's one in three marriages that end in divorce. That's not an insignificant number. Uh, this is an issue that we all have experience with, uh, either directly or indirectly, and this means that we should all have a pretty good grasp on the Bible's teaching on the permissibility of divorce. And that's what we're exploring here in Matthew 19, 1-12, as we move verse by verse to the book of Matthew. As I mentioned last week, a couple of years ago, as I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, the elders realized that our bylaws did not reflect uh, our actual position on divorce, what we thought our position on divorce uh, to be. Uh, an elder had uh, come to me before I preached on Jesus teaching on divorce in Matthew five thirty one to thirty two, and he expressed that he didn't think our bylaws accurately reflected what the scriptural position on divorce is. Uh, he gave me some material to read. We all did some digging together, and we realized that yes, there did seem to be some strong evidence pointing to a more restrictive understanding of divorce than what was stated in our bylaws. Now, at the time, we didn't entirely agree on the permissibility of remarriage after divorce, and so rather than initiate an immediate update to the bylaws, we decided to wait it out until we could all agree on the divorce and remarriage issue in its entirety from beginning to end. And two and a half years later, here we are. Uh, we had set the divorce and remarriage discussion aside for a while so we could focus on some other aspects of the church plant. But a few months back, we realized that this passage was coming up in Matthew and we really needed to settle this issue. So Clint and I have gotten together to talk this out. We agree. And so now here I am ready to explain to you where we've landed. And just so you know, I won't be able to explain all of it today here in this message. There's a lot to cover. Uh, some of this will have to be tonight. Um, but I'm going to try to do the best I can with the time we have here today. Our bylaws currently state that divorce is permissible either when a believer is married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants a divorce or when a spouse is engaged to an unrepentant or to uh, is uh, a spouse is engaged in unrepentant sexual immorality. Uh, they also state that remarriage is permissible either following a biblical divorce or following the death of a spouse. Uh, two years ago, I stated that we probably needed to amend our position stating that divorce was permitted in the case of unrepentant sexual immorality. At the time, the elders agreed there was, a, there was biblical evidence indicating that this was not a legitimate reason for divorce. Today, I'm going to explain to you why we now think that it is actually a legitimate reason, uh, though perhaps not the only one, actually. And I'm going to do this using Matthew 19, 1-12 as our base text. Matthew 19, 1-12 contains the phrase known as the exception clause. Uh, you see that. Uh, in verse 9, uh, when Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. That's where a lot of the debate over the permissibility of divorce rages, over the meaning of this phrase, except for sexual immorality. 
And that makes this a pretty good place to start uh, with this discussion. Now, last week I noted that Matthew 19, 1-12 contains the exception clause. But although it contains the exception clause, its teaching is actually much broader than that. The exception clause is just one phrase in this passage. It's not really the point of this passage. So rather than jump into the exception clause right away, we took a week uh, kind of gathering the larger point that's being driven home here. That point comes down in verses 10 to 12. When the disciples respond to Jesus' teaching on divorce by going, hey, if this is what marriage is like, then we're better off not getting married. To which Jesus essentially said, yeah, you're right. But not everyone can accept this. There are people who devote themselves wholly to the kingdom of heaven, so let the one who is able to receive this receive it. I explained that we're entering the section of Matthew where Jesus is going to start talking about the implications of his resurrection and return, and this is one of them. The resurrection and imminent return of Christ means that, if possible, it is better to wholly commit oneself to the kingdom of heaven, perhaps even through singleness, rather than to get married. And I explained last week this isn't because there's any merit in singleness or something like that. It's not as if the one who remains single is more serious about their faith than one who's married. Uh, Rather, this is simply because the single person is able to devote themselves more wholly to the work of advancing Christ's kingdom without distraction. It's better from a mission standpoint. In a sense, it's it's better practically, not spiritually. And we saw how Paul kind of illustrated that point in 1 Corinthians 7. And this seems to be the point that Matthew is most interested in. This idea that if possible, it's better for a person to remain single for the sake of the kingdom than to be married. This whole discussion on divorce is actually just the setting for the comment on eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven in verses 10 to 12. At the conclusion of last week's message, I said it was important to observe this point, that this passage is, in a sense, really about singleness more than anything else for a couple of reasons. First, I said, it was, I said this was important because it helps us understand that Jesus isn't giving the final word on marriage, remarriage, and divorce in this passage. This perhaps comes more from Paul's explanation of the subject in 1 Corinthians 7 than it does from Matthew 19 by itself. But Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7 seem to be an expansion of the principle that Jesus touches on here in Matthew 19. Paul's talking about singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And there are these instances where he says, now to the married, Jesus says, apparently referring to Jesus' teaching on divorce in Matthew 19. And then later he says, now to the rest I say, I not the Lord, indicating that Jesus did not give direct teaching to that group. So Paul seems to be expanding on the teaching of this passage as he discusses singleness for the kingdom of heaven. And what it shows us is that Jesus wasn't giving the final word on marriage, divorce, and remarriage when he spoke these words in Matthew 19. He's laying down principles, principles which Paul can later expand on quite a bit in 1 Corinthians 7. In fact, even though Jesus says that divorce or remarriage amounts to adultery, except in the case of immorality in Matthew 19, Paul goes on to say that divorce is actually permissible when an unbelieving spouse asks to be released. And that's something that he says quite explicitly did not come as a direct teaching of Jesus. So he's adding on to Jesus' instruction on this issue. Again, this shows us that Jesus wasn't giving the definitive word on divorce in Matthew 19. 
In other words, it's probably not reasonable to assume that this exception, if it applies, it's not reasonable to assume that it is necessarily the only exception. After all, it doesn't appear that Jesus is intending to be that precise in this discussion. When he's intending, what he's intending to do is address the Pharisees' question about essentially no-fault divorce. That's his main concern, divorce for any cause. That's the problem he wants to answer. And as I think you'll see today, as he answers that question, he understands that if he doesn't qualify his words, he is going to be gravely misunderstood. So he throws the exception in, for clarity's sake, to avoid any confusion that he might be stating more on this issue than he actually is. Uh, You've probably done something like this uh, pretty often. For example, maybe... Uh, one day you heard the president say something that you liked, and you want to share that without it being viewed as an endorsement of the president. And so you might say, now I'm not saying I'm a supporter of President Obama or, or the president or whoever it is, but, and you tag in that clarification in order to avoid confusion. This, I think we'll see, is why Jesus includes the exception. Without it, his listeners, and not just his listeners, but Matthew's readers, would think that Jesus is making a very serious miscalculation legally under the Mosaic Law. And so Jesus throws this in to say, but just to be clear, I'm not saying that. That's all the exception is. It's a clarification. It's not intended to be comprehensive. What Jesus is doing is laying down principles in this passage, and what we need to do as readers... As we, as we explore the exception, is to understand the exception simply as that, a principle. It isn't the final word on divorce, but it does guide us on Jesus' understanding of this issue. The second reason why I said the context of the exception clause matters is because it helps us understand the mindset that the early church had on this issue when Matthew wrote these words. We tend to think about divorce, honestly, we tend to think about divorce much in the same way the Pharisees did when they came to Jesus with this question. We want to know about the permissibility of divorce. We want to know, when can I divorce my spouse? When is that allowed? And that is, that's completely backwards from how the early church thought about this issue. Again, you flip forward into Paul's explanation of Jesus' instruction, and what the early church is wanting to know is not, you know, can I divorce my spouse? But should I divorce my spouse? Like they understand what Jesus said about about it being better to be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. They understand that the time is short, and that it's better to devote oneself wholly to Christ. And they're going, so like, should I divorce my spouse then? I mean, what if they're an unbeliever? I shouldn't be unequally yoked, right? I mean, Christ doesn't have anything in common with Belial, right? So should I divorce them? They're looking at this issue from an entirely different perspective than the way we tend to look at it. We're looking at it in terms of our personal happiness. And so we ask, how long do I have to be married with someone who makes me unhappy? But they're looking at it in terms of the kingdom of heaven in terms of what's honoring to Christ. And they're asking, so should I stay married to someone who doesn't love Christ? And even if they do, would it be a good idea for us to to divorce so we can be undistracted in our devotion to Christ? And of course, Paul says to that, no, absolutely not. 
They shouldn't divorce. But this is just an entirely different issue than what we're wrestling with. And I point this out because I think it will help you understand the exception clause. What I think you'll see is that the exception is made for those in the second camp. It's made for those who are wondering, when would it be honoring to God? This is so backwards from even the way we think about this. When would it be honoring to God to divorce my spouse? The first camp, the one who just wants to be separated from their spouse because they don't like them anymore, that's the Pharisees. And Jesus dismantles their thinking. Their thinking is never justified. The second camp, though, the one that's concerned about God's righteousness, I don't don't know that I would say that Jesus endorses their response. I don't think he does. But he understands where they're coming from, and he doesn't condemn them for the issue that they're struggling with. Point is, if we're going to understand the exception clause, I think we need to abandon the pharisaical mindset, the mindset that tries to twist God's word so that we can do the least amount of righteousness possible while still feeling good about it, and instead take on the mindset that says, I live for God now, and so what I want more than anything else is to glorify God with every aspect of my life, including my marriage. Because this is the mindset that's going to clarify this issue. So last week, we really focused on the last three verses of this passage in order to help set the stage for our discussion of the exception clause. That's where I want to focus today, on the meaning of the exception clause in verse 9. But before we do that, let's go ahead and reorient ourselves to the text by reading the passage together. Matthew 19, 1-12. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So as I mentioned last week, the exception clause is set within the context of this challenge that occurs from the Pharisees in verse 3, where they ask, Is it lawful to divorce one's spouse, one's wife, for any cause? You may have heard this before, but there were two rabbinic schools of thought that were particularly popular at this time in Israel. Uh, The first was led by a rabbi named Shemai, the second by a a rabbi named Hillel. Uh, Shemai taught that divorce was permitted in instances of sexual immorality only. Hillel taught that divorce was permissible for any reason, uh, so long as a man issued the certificate of divorce demanded by Moses in Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 
1 to 4, by the way, which is really the setting for this question, that reads as follows. Just, if you want to turn there, you can. Deuteronomy 24, if you want to read along. This sets the, the question up. This is what Moses said there. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. So that's the passage. You had these two camps. Shammai said that uh, this was permissible only in cases of uh, sexual immorality. Hillel said for any reason at all. Hillel was the more popular of these two camps. And so the Pharisees come asking Jesus to weigh in on this issue, and they come presenting the issue from Hillel's perspective. They want to know, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, as I noted last week, Jesus has already made his position on divorce crystal clear on several instances, actually. And so it would seem that at the very least... This means that the Pharisees are trying to discredit Jesus by making him repeat a position that they know is unpopular. Jesus, for his part, isn't particularly shy about conflict. But he's not stupid either. He knows that they're trying to bait him by getting him to state a position they don't think he can support. So he states his position. It's the same position that he stated in the Sermon on the Mount, only this time he doesn't just state it, he gives the biblical evidence for it. He's not going to be baited by a trap designed to make it look like he doesn't care about Scripture. So he says, verses 4 to 6, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two But one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, Jesus knows what's about to come up in verse 7. He understands the issue. He understands that the Pharisees believe that divorce was permitted by Moses' instructions in Deuteronomy 24. And so to combat this, he goes back to the original design for marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, and he defends his position this way. He essentially says, look, a man and a wife have been joined together by God in marriage, right? Uh, Moses goes so far as to say that they're no longer two, but even one, right? They form a new union, a new entity. So if that's what's happened in marriage, and if God has joined these two together to form this new entity, then they shouldn't be separated. Marriage, Jesus said, was designed to be permanent. That's his basic point. No, Divorce for any cause is not okay because God created marriage to be a permanent institution. That's his point. And please note this, by the way. Jesus Jesus doesn't start with the command from Moses. He goes back to the theological principles that undergird marriage first. And then he interprets Moses' command in that light. I noted this last week. Jesus doesn't interpret commands on their own. He reads them in light of their theological background. He starts with core theological principles, and then he interprets God's commands in light of those principles, not the other way around. 
We've actually already seen him do this on a few occasions earlier in Matthew. This is how he works. He focuses on the intent of God's commands, and then he interprets God's commands in that light. And this is very important, by the way. This is how we're going to need to approach the exception as well. We have to ask, what's the principle that Jesus is establishing with the exception? What's the intent in this exception? And then we have to go from there. The Pharisees' problem was that they didn't do this. They didn't ask, why is this command here? What's the theological basis for this command? They only asked, what's the command? And then they tried to navigate the principles created by the command itself. So when they think of divorce, all they consider is Moses' regulation of the practice. And for them, the only principles that apply then are, number one, when you get a divorce... You must issue the proper certificate so that your former wife isn't labeled as an adulterer. That's considering your neighbor in their eyes. If I file the right paperwork so my ex-wife isn't stoned as an adulterer, I'm good. I've done my job in considering her well-being. That's one of the principles they derive from Deuteronomy 24. The other which was the actual point of the law, was once you do get a divorce, you cannot go back and marry that wife again. Moses permitted divorce on those two conditions. First, the proper paperwork had to be filed. And second, remarriage to the original spouse isn't permitted after that spouse has been married to someone else. And the Pharisees can't think of this issue any bigger than that. The command itself is the only thing that mattered. Moses permitted it, he regulated it, So it must be okay. Jesus is refuting this idea on the basis of Genesis 1 and 2, though. He's saying that even though Moses regulated divorce, this didn't mean that it was okay to divorce your spouse for any cause. And so they asked Jesus to explain. They say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They say, but Jesus, if divorce isn't okay then why is there this command from Moses about writing a certificate of divorce and sending her away? If divorce isn't permissible, as you say, because it was designed, marriage was designed to be a permanent institution, then why is there this regulation? You say the scriptures indicate divorce is not allowed. And yet Moses has this whole command about a certificate of divorce. How does that work? Reconcile this tension for us. Explain it to us. And they probably think at this point, we've got him. He just said the scripture doesn't allow divorce when clearly Moses allowed divorce. It says right there in Deuteronomy 24, when you issue the certificate of divorce and send her away, you can't remarry. Clearly the principle is that divorce is permitted. We've got him. But then Jesus clarifies. He says, verse 8, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. He acknowledges, in a sense you're right actually, Moses did allow you to divorce your wives. But, he says, this was only because of your hardness of heart. Marriage wasn't designed this way. He says, yeah, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And implicit in this answer, by the way, is the idea that he allowed it for any cause. Moses let that happen. But he says that wasn't because this type of divorce was ever okay. 
It's because he knew he couldn't stop you. So because he couldn't stop you, he regulated it. And Jesus is right, by the way. You go back and you read Deuteronomy 24, and Moses never actually said that divorce for any cause was okay. Moses says that when a man takes his, uh, takes his wife, if she finds no favor in his eyes because of some indecency, and then puts a certificate of divorce in her hand, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and if that second husband then divorces her or dies, then the first husband can't remarry her. Now this word for indecency in Deuteronomy 24 does seem to be more of a catch-all phrase that implies something closer to for any cause, that, that for any clause that the Pharisees have in mind. That seems to be what Moses has in mind. If a man divorces his wife because there's something about her that he doesn't like anymore and does this, the Pharisees are right in that regard. Hillel was right in this regard. But what they were wrong about was that Moses never endorsed this kind of divorce. He never said it was okay. He just said, look, when this type of divorce does happen, the first husband can't go and remarry that woman again. In this sense, Moses allowed this type of divorce to go on, but he never said it was okay. If anything, if you think about it, if anything, Moses is actually indicating that this kind of divorce is not okay. It's abominable, actually. Because he regulates remarriage to the first spouse after this kind of divorce. He doesn't say that the woman can't marry another man after she uh, marries a second husband and he divorces her or dies. She's apparently free to remarry anyone else. It's the first husband that's off limits. If anything, this is implying that this kind of divorce is not okay. So Moses never said this type of divorce was okay. He just regulated what to do when it did happen because he knew it would happen. So if you want to get technical, yes, divorce for any cause was lawful. I mean, it, was, it definitely wasn't unlawful. Under the Mosaic law, no one was going to get stoned as an adulterer for a sinful divorce. Even sinful divorce was permitted in this sense. And this is important, by the way. Divorce and remarriage was not treated as adultery legally. However, that wasn't because that was God's design for things. For marriages to be formed and then broken at a whim. This, Jesus says in verse 9, is actually no different than adultery. Again, it's not adultery technically. Legally, When a person divorces and remarries. There was no command to stone a man who divorced his wife for any reason. But it still went contrary to God's design. It was still adultery spiritually, even if it wasn't so legally. This is Jesus' point. They want to know, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? And Jesus actually sidesteps that issue at first, because lawful isn't the real issue. The real issue isn't whether or not this is something God allows or permits under the Mosaic Law. The real issue is whether or not this is something God is okay with. And so Jesus goes back to the heart of the issue and he says divorce shouldn't happen. Marriage was designed to be permanent. But the Pharisees press him on it. They say, but Moses allowed it. And Jesus says, you're right, Moses allowed it. And in that sense, divorce isn't unlawful, but this doesn't mean it's okay because marriage wasn't designed this way. It shouldn't happen. 
So I'm telling you, if you divorce your wife, no, you may not be an adulterer legally, but you're still one spiritually. I don't care what kind of paperwork you file, you're still breaking your covenant. You may not be stoned to death as an adulterer, but you're still violating God's design for marriage by being unfaithful to the woman you swore yourself to. And if you're paying attention, this is the same point that Jesus made back in the Sermon on the Mount. Is anger lawful? Is anger lawful? Well, it's not unlawful per se. People weren't put to death for anger. They were put to death for murder. But this doesn't mean that anger is okay. Technically, you could say anger was, was lawful in this sense because it wasn't specifically prohibited under the law. But this doesn't mean that God was just fine with anger, ever. Same for lust. Not strictly prohibited under the law per se, but it still wasn't okay. And it was the same with divorce. Yes, the law said, issue a certificate of divorce. But just because you issue the certificate of divorce doesn't mean that you've pleased God. Because God designed marriage to be permanent. So Jesus says, yes, Moses allowed it, but it's not okay. And he's getting this from the text, by the way. In fact, if you stop to think about it, he's actually reading the text more closely than the Pharisees are. He's reading the fine print in Moses' command better than the Pharisees are, and it's perfectly consistent with his understanding of the permanence of marriage from Genesis 1 and 2. The Pharisees see the regulation, but they're missing the fact that Moses never endorsed divorce as a spiritually legitimate action. He merely allowed it. And Jesus sees this, he points it out, and apparently the Pharisees realize the legitimacy of what Jesus is saying because there's no follow-up. It would seem as if they're confounded. He silences them. Now that being said, I want you to understand what Jesus is addressing here. Listen to this very closely because this is very important. When Jesus talks about divorce and remarriage in verse 10, he's addressing motives. And again, this is very important. He's not saying that the one who divorces and remarries is legally guilty of adultery any more than the one who lusts in the heart. Again, Moses permitted divorce. It was, quote, lawful, if you want to call it that, in that sense. Again, no one was going to get stoned for a sinful divorce. But at the same time, this doesn't mean that those who filed for divorce weren't still guilty of adultery spiritually in the heart, just like the one who lusts is guilty of adultery in the heart. So also the one who files for divorce for any cause is guilty of adultery in their heart. It's not about what it is legally, it's not about what is legally permissible, it's about motives. That's the standard of righteousness that Jesus is calling His people to in the Sermon on the Mount as well. He was demanding more than the bare minimum requirement under the law. He was demanding more than the external righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not merely what is technically allowed that matters to Jesus, but the heart that drives these actions. And His point is that while divorce, and divorce for any reason, was in a sense allowed under the law, the one who divorced their spouse was still guilty in their heart of adultery. Except, except, Jesus says, for the one who does this in the case of sexual immorality, or porneia, as it's stated in the Greek. In the case of porneia, the one seeking the divorce is not guilty of adultery in the heart. I want you to understand this. When Jesus utters this exception clause, 
His point is not really to address what is allowed. Exactly. His point is to address motives. He's saying the one that, who divorces his wife in this instance is not guilty of having an adulterous heart. Now the reason why this distinction matters is because it demonstrates, and don't get ahead of me here, you'll, you'll understand where I'm going with this, I think, before we're done. The reason why this distinction matters is because it demonstrates that the mere act of divorce is not inherently wrong. What's wrong is the motive that leads to that divorce. And this matters when you get into the subject of remarriage. If you notice here, Jesus isn't talking about the act of divorce in verse 9. He's talking about divorce and remarriage. He's saying that is adultery. This raises the possibility that it's not okay for the divorced spouse to get remarried. And to be fair, you can say that in a sense they shouldn't. Because again, marriage was designed as a permanent institution. So even if the spouse was divorced wrongfully, the preferable thing for them would be to be reunited with their original spouse. But at the same time, have they sinned by being divorced? Or do they sin if they remarry after they have been divorced? Not necessarily. Not if their motive throughout has been to stay faithful to their husband or wife. Again, you have to read Jesus' statement in context. He's asked about divorce for any cause. That's what he's addressing. He's addressing the one who's divorcing flippantly. In fact, it would seem that the reason why he throws in the exception clause is to specifically indicate that he's not addressing those who divorce for other types of reasons. He's acknowledging not everyone who seeks a divorce is guilty of adultery. For instance, those who do it because of sexual immorality are not guilty of adultery. Apparently, they can get divorced and remarried, and it's fine. So again, it's not as if divorce is inherently wrong. It's the motive that matters. So it's possible to get divorced and remarried without committing sin. The issue comes down to motive. And this is important because this is where we're going to have to take this conversation about divorce and remarriage. We have to stop thinking about it in terms of actions only and start thinking about it in terms of the heart. Jesus' point in this passage is that it's never okay to want to divorce your spouse. Whether you file the correct paperwork or not, if you're filing it because you're tired of your spouse and you want to be separated, you are being unfa- you're being unfaithful to your marriage vows. And so while you may not technically be guilty of adultery when you remarry because you broke your marriage vows when you initiated the divorce. The point is that you still broke your marriage vows when you divorced your spouse so you could marry someone else. It's adultery with legal cover, but it's still adultery. So that attitude is never okay, never. And so what Jesus is recognizing is that there is an instance where a person might seek a divorce, not because they simply want to switch wives. And he's saying... Those people aren't guilty of adultery. Now, I don't think he's saying they should go ahead and get the divorce. Again, he's not addressing the permissibility of divorce in a legal sense in that instance. He's addressing motive. And he's qualifying his statement about motives by saying, the one who's motivated by this is not guilty of adultery. He's not addressing when divorce is allowed. Again, he's addressing motives. And he's making sure that his listeners don't misunderstand him and think that he's attributing sinful motives to someone who is not sinfully motivated in their divorce. 
So what could he be talking about here? What's going on with this exception clause? Why does Jesus make this exception? What's he referring to when he makes this exception? I have to say the exception clause, honestly, it's always kind of bugged me. Once again, the word here in the Greek is porneia, and porneia is a term that does refer to general sexual immorality. It's not the same word as adultery. That's the word moikeia. And both Jesus and Matthew apparently make a distinction between these two, these two terms. Because in Matthew 5.19, Jesus actually uses them side by side. When he says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, that's the moikeia word, sexual immorality, porneia, theft, false witness, slander. In other words, it's not as if Jesus is even saying, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another, commits adultery. No, he's just referring to general sexual immorality. So one of the questions I've always had when it comes to the exception clause is, where's the line? Where's the line? Divorce is permissible not just in the instance of adultery, but in the instance of sexual immorality. That seems to make it possible for lesser offenses, offenses that don't qualify as adultery, but still some that still qualify as sexual immorality, it seems to make those lesser offenses sufficient grounds for divorce. Why would that be? Like, is it okay for a woman to divorce her husband if he looks at pornography? Or for that matter, can a husband divorce his wife simply because she has impure thoughts? I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 5 that the individual who lusted after someone else has already committed adultery in their heart. Could that make impure thoughts grounds for divorce? Where's the line? And for that matter, how often does a person have to cross it? I've always kind of wondered why sexual immorality in particular is the thing that makes divorce okay. I've heard it explained that sexual immorality breaks the marriage covenant. That's why it ends the marriage. It breaks the marriage covenant, so it's permissible to divorce. But then I say, but (laughs) true, but there are a lot of other ways that you can break a marriage covenant than just that. I mean, you can be emotionally involved with a coworker without ever having a physical relationship with them. And that's still a pretty serious breach of covenant. If not even a more serious breach of covenant than a merely physical relationship. But Jesus doesn't make provision for that. You can just emotionally check out as a husband or wife, too. Not seek to care for your spouse. You can be a lousy spouse, someone who's just not very good at being a husband or wife, and doesn't even try to be. And you could argue that this is a breach of the marriage covenant, too. But Jesus doesn't seem to apply that divorce is okay in that scenario. So why the physical relationship? God never seems to indicate that physical relations create a marital bond. So why would physical relations automatically break a marital bond? It seems that marriage is treated rather as a covenant in Scripture, which means that it has to do more with oaths. And this is, by the way, why I've always rejected the argument that remarriage is never okay after divorce. That argument is based on the idea that marriage is a one-flesh relationship that cannot be dissolved even after the marriage covenant has been terminated. And I just don't see any category for that in Scripture. 
Clearly, the woman in Deuteronomy 24 is allowed to marry a second or even a third or a fourth husband even after divorce. She's just not allowed to go back to the first one. In Leviticus 21, priests are told they can't marry divorcees. The implication is that remarriage is permitted in other instances. I don't see how this all could be if a person was still one flesh with their spouse even after divorce. It would mean that God is actually is permitting actual, literal adultery, which doesn't make sense. In fact, you look at what Jesus says here in Matthew 19, and he doesn't say what God has joined together no man can separate. He says what God has joined together let not man separate. That's a command. And the implication is that it's a command that can be broken. Man can separate what God has joined together in the instance of marriage. So marriage is a covenant. It has to do with the making of an oath. Well, if does one act of immorality necessarily indicate that the oath is actually terminated? Again, I'm just going to thought life and I'm going, look, we make this oath and we break it in our hearts all the time. Is that enough to terminate the marriage? I think we can all recognize that we struggle in our hearts and still go, but I want to be committed to my spouse. Like we can be committed to our oath even as we struggle to fulfill it. So does one act of indiscretion automatically terminate the covenant? Suppose it did. Suppose a husband is unfaithful in more than his thought life. He's struggling inside with his feelings towards a co-worker and it's a real genuine struggle. But he doesn't really know how to handle that struggle because he's, no one has discipled him or counseled him in that area. He exposes himself to temptation and then in the heat of a moment he sins. But immediately afterwards he regrets it. He doesn't try to hide his sin. He confesses it to his wife right away. He begs her for, his, for her forgiveness and he's sincere. Is she still permitted to divorce him? Now set him aside for a moment whether or not she should. What I want to know is, is she allowed to divorce him if she chooses? Because if she is, then I don't know what to do with passages like the one that comes right before this one in Matthew 19. You know, the passage where Jesus demands that his disciples forgive one another, and not just once or twice, but 70 times seven times. Limitless times, Jesus says. I mean, if any type of immorality, and understand, not just actual adultery, because Jesus specifically states this with this more general term, porneia, if any single act of immorality is enough to make a divorce legitimate, then it seems like anyone could be divorced at that level. And it's permissible. Does this, does this become an acceptable to stay, uh, step to take with just any act of immorality? It just doesn't seem to make sense. So two and a half years ago when this issue was raised and it was proposed that this word porneia isn't a reference to any type of immorality, but immorality during the betrothal period, I was kind of relieved initially. And I won't go over, back over the reasons uh, to take that position, but there seem to be some legitimate reasons from Scripture to hold that position. That divorce, that what, that what um, Matthew is addressing is immorality during the betrothal period. And at the time, that made things somewhat clearer. That seemed to fit more of Jesus' explanation of the permanence of marriage. 
Again, under that position, basically, there is no actual exception for immorality. Jesus is just taking into account the Jewish practice uh, to issue a certificate of divorce even when an engagement is being broken off. And that's not actual divorce because the covenant was never officially formed. It was just promised. So, uh, that being said, after the covenant's formed, there's no provision for divorce. Even if your spouse cheats on you a hundred times under that position, you, can keep, you, you keep on staying committed to them because you swore a covenant to love them. And the Christian ethic is that we follow through on this commitment whether they return that love or not. After all, that's God's grace to us, isn't it? That's kind of the, that position. That seems somewhat more in tune with Jesus' ethic. That seem to fit passages like Matthew 18, 21 to 35. But the question I still wrestled with was what do you do if the victim in that scenario still divorces their spouse, anyways? I look at scenarios where an unbelieving husband is repeatedly cheating on his wife, he's checked out, he's living with someone else, he's not even trying at the marriage anymore. He's done. He doesn't want forgiveness, but he doesn't want to pursue a divorce either because of financial reasons. Is the wife just stuck in that scenario? Say it's a community property state, and the husband is just racking up debts that his wife is going to be held legally accountable for. Is she stuck in that scenario? Suppose she decides to divorce him. Would I initiate church discipline against her? I mean, she's the victim, right? Am I going to tell her that she's morally obligated to be victimized? That doesn't smell right either. My gut tells me that's wrong. Now, my gut could be wrong. My gut's been wrong before. My instinct's been wrong before. But it made me want to keep digging. It made me want to try to keep searching to see how the Scripture answered that scenario. And in the end, if that's what the Scripture said, I was prepared to go with it. But I really wanted to know if that's the Scripture's final answer. This is a big deal. So one of the questions that's raised as we look at this is, is how was adultery handled in the Old Testament? And the answer you probably know is death. The cheating spouse wasn't divorced, they were put to death. Those who hold a permanent view of marriage say this is one of the reasons why a spouse has to remain married. They say because a husband and wife have become one flesh and they're this one flesh relationship which can only be broken by death. In the Old Testament, adultery ended in the death of the cheating spouse. That would free that person to remarry, but that penalty doesn't carry over into the New Testament, and divorce doesn't end that one flesh relationship. Only death does. So the options are either stay married or get divorced, but don't get remarried. That seems like kind of an odd development. But it makes sense if you're defining marriage with this indissoluble one flesh concept, which I don't. Now, those who say there is an exception in the case of Pornea argue that divorce is permitted on this basis, that the Old Testament commanded death in the case of adultery, but this penalty is no longer demanded today. They say divorce is allowed as a more gracious way of ending the marriage than death. And so the spouses, the victimized spouse is still taken in consideration, but the cheating spouse, they're not put to death as a kind of a gracious consideration for them. That sounds good. But it raises the question, is this why death was demanded for adultery in the Old Testament? 
Did God demand death as a protection for the victimized spouse? So I started looking. And you know what I found? The Old Testament does not indicate, it does not indicate that the death penalty was instituted as a protection for the spouse. But what it does indicate is that it was commanded to keep the land of Israel pure. For instance, this is what it says in Deuteronomy 22.22. It says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. This is why it was required. Listen, it wasn't an option. It was required to put the adulterers to death. Why? To purge evil from the land of Israel. And this actually explains Jesus' point in the exception clause. It wasn't the answer that I was expecting when I went looking, but it actually solved all the questions that I have about the exception clause. You see, part of the purpose of the law was to provide a system that allowed a holy God to dwell in the midst of Israel and bless them. This means that Israel was instructed how not to sin in such a way that God's anger would not be provoked. That was one part of the law. But they were also told what to do once sin did happen, Again, so that God's anger would not be provoked. That was another part of the law. The cleanness laws, the sacrificial system, for instance, that was all designed to allow Israel to maintain God's presence in their midst. God is holy, and so He demanded His people to be pure as He dwelled among them. And so He had laws to this effect. Incidentally, this is part of the reason why we do not keep these laws today. God is not present in America in the same way that He was present in the tabernacle in Israel. Well, it was for this reason that God demanded, not just suggested, but demanded, that the adultery be put to death, to purge evil from the land of Israel. That penalty was required to keep a holy God from erupting in anger against a sinful people and invoking all the curses of the Mosaic Covenant upon them. And it wasn't just adultery that this penalty was demanded for, but other types of sexual sins that can't be properly labeled as adultery. Sins like incest, for example. I won't name the whole list, but you can find them in Leviticus 18 and 20. These are sins that required death under the Mosaic Covenant. And for one to ignore this penalty would mean that they had breached the covenant and they were inviting God's wrath. So then fast forward to the time of Christ. Israel is under the rule of Rome, as directed by the sovereign hand of God for their reputed breach of His covenant, for constantly failing to keep the law of Moses. They cannot rebel against Rome because God has made it clear that pagan nations like this one have been sent to rebuke them for their disobedience. Rebellion against this discipline would be futile, they understand, and it would actually only result in greater discipline. Rome, however, prohibits the exercise of capital punishment by the nations and territories it's conquered. Its sentence is a sentence that only Roman officials can order. That's why the Jews took Jesus to Pilate actually, to be put to death. They didn't have the legal authority to execute that sentence without Pilate's approval. So you're a righteous Jewish man who takes the law very seriously. You want to be faithful to the law of Moses, and you just found out that your wife had an affair. What do you do? You may want to forgive her, 
But the law requires death because of the impurity that this, sin, that this sin brings into the land. And according to the way you understand that command, if you do nothing, you're exciting the same anger from God that placed you under the yoke of Roman bondage. But you can't follow through with that aspect of the law because the Roman authority that God has placed over you to discipline you has prohibited it. What do you do? How do you demonstrate your regard for God's holiness on the one hand while at the same time submitting to the authority that God has placed over you? You divorce. Do you understand divorce would actually be the step that would be required in these types of instances. This is what happens with Joseph, actually, earlier in Matthew. Matthew says that Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and, quote, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You see, Deuteronomy 22 would have actually dictated that a woman who committed immorality during the betrothal period be put to death. They weren't divorced. They were executed. Now, there could be some debate uh, from Deuteronomy 22 about whether this sentence would have applied to Mary because she hadn't actually been wed to Joseph when this immorality was discovered, and that seems to play at least partly into that whole decision. Either way, Joseph, being a just man, realizes that he can't marry her. He can't. Because he believes she has brought evil into the land. And so being a just man, he sought to divorce her. And because he does not want to put her to shame, he resolves to do it quietly. Can you see the significance of that? Joseph doesn't hate Mary when he seeks to divorce her. It's not even something that he thinks, that he, that it's not even necessarily something that he wants to do. He simply thinks it's the only action he can take under the law. It's the thing he must do if he wants to be faithful to Moses. So keep this in mind now. Jesus says divorce isn't allowed. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another is really an adulterer. And you know what his Jewish listeners are going to think? Do you know what Matthew's Jewish readers are going to think? Matthew, by the way, who's writing to a Jewish audience, he's the only gospel writer that includes the exception clause. You know what his Jewish readers would say? They'd say, but what about adultery? What about incest? What about all these other sexual sins that Moses said we couldn't bring into the land? And Jesus knows this. And so as he delivers this statement, he clarifies. He says, the one who does this is an adulterer, except the one who does this in the case of Pornea. Again, keep in mind here, all he's doing is addressing motive. He's not saying that that was the right interpretation of the law that the Jewish man was indeed required to divorce his spouse in this instance, all he's doing is recognizing that this man, men like Joseph, mind you, aren't divorcing their wives for sinful reasons. They weren't doing it for the same reason that the Pharisees were. They weren't looking to divorce their wives. They just thought it was the right action to take. Jesus isn't condemning those types of divorces. Whether he thought it was misguided or not, he was at least recognizing that those men weren't seeking to be unfaithful when they divorced their wives. I think this is a situation that Jesus is addressing. And if you stop to think about it, it not only resolves a lot of the dilemmas that I mentioned earlier about divorce, but it resolves quite a few textual issues as well. For example, 
What do you do about Ezra 10? When the men of Israel divorce their foreign wives. It's explained by this concept. As important as marriage was, faithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant was more important. In most situations, that meant death rather than divorce because sexual immorality was a situation that caused the breach in covenant. There was direct sin on the part of one spouse and the penalty for that sin naturally terminated the marriage relationship. But in that situation with Ezra, there was no sin. At least not for the foreign wives in that situation. The foreign women in that scenario were guiltless. And yet the men were not allowed to be married to them for covenantal reasons. So what was the logical conclusion? Divorce. The men who divorced in that scenario, believe it or not, they weren't sinning. They weren't being commanded to sin. The sin actually came much earlier when they broke the command by marrying a foreign wife to begin with. But after that happened, divorce was actually the appropriate action to take. And note that, yes, marriage should be permanent, but there do seem to be unusual situations where divorce might be the appropriate action to take. In other words, while divorce isn't preferred, it isn't always wrong either. And in some very unique circumstances, it might even be the right thing to do. I think you see one of those situations come up when John the Baptist confronts Herod over his marriage to Herodias. John tells Herod that it's not lawful for him to be married to Herodias. Have you ever thought about why he says that? Yes, Herodias' divorce to Herod's brother Philip II was an unbiblical divorce. And her remarriage to Herod Antipas was in this sense an act of adultery, according to what Jesus is saying here. But think about it. John says to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What's he referring to there? Is he saying that Herodias is still in a one flesh relationship with Philip II? And so she should divorce and go back to her first husband? If so, then John is advocating for, for Herod to do that, to divorce Herodias so she can go back to her first husband. And not only would that be a direct contradiction of Deuteronomy 24, but it would indicate that remarriages after an unbiblical divorce are not binding and they need to be ended. Consider the implications of that. But if you put John's words in the context of Leviticus 18 and 20, where a man is put to death for uncovering the nakedness of his brother's wife, and it makes more sense. John uses this phrase, brother's wife, not because Herodias is somehow still married to Philip, but because it highlights John's point. The relationship is incestuous and is prohibited by the law of Moses. So incest, for example, will be one of those instances where divorce isn't just a possibility, it's required, actually. And I could go on. For example, this understanding of the exception clause actually fits the broad meaning of porneia better than immorality during betrothal while still acknowledging it's not the same thing as adultery. This understanding of this clause helps explain why Mark doesn't include this exception in the parallel account in his gospel. Mark doesn't include it because he's writing to Gentiles and they wouldn't have the same objective here as Jews. They would have never thought, even in the case of sexual immorality, that divorce was ever a required action because they were never under the ritualistic prescriptions of the Mosaic Law. This just simply wasn't an issue for them. Now this principle really starts to open up the discussion about divorce. It resolves a lot of issues practically about how to approach the idea of divorce and remarriage. But unfortunately, I'm out of time. I'm probably over time (laughs) quite a bit. And so I'll get into the specific application of this concept during our discussion tonight at 6.
And if this is a subject that interests you, I'd strongly encourage you to be here. If you notice uh, in your bulletin, I don't have any discussion questions in the bulletin today. And that's because I'm just planning on letting you grill me with questions tonight. Uh, That's what we'll be doing tonight. I'll try to talk through some of the implications of this concept. I'll review the core concepts that have been established, try to apply those concepts to, to some specific scenarios. Then anything that's left over, you can ask me about, and I'll try to answer it as best as I can. How does this actually work itself out, this understanding? How does it apply? If you can't be there, I'll give you a heads up. As far as our bylaws go, uh, we've determined that we're not changing our bylaws after all. Uh, Kind of anticlimactic, I know, uh, after two weeks. Uh, But we think that they're sufficient to cover the basic instruction on divorce in the New Testament. We say that divorce is permissible when an unbeliever wants out of the relationship and when there is unrepentant sexual immorality. Uh, So we're not changing anything there. Uh, And we still think that remarriage is permissible after death and after a biblical divorce. And the key word there, by the way, is biblical. If someone divorces their spouse simply because they're tired of being married or whatever, they're not free to remarry so long as that other spouse is unmarried. They need to try to go back to them, reconcile the relationship. The key issue for us is motive. Why do you want to get a divorce? And we would say that it is never okay for a Christian to want a divorce. That's what Jesus is going after here. Again, Jesus blows that possibility out of the water. We should never desire to be separated. But at the same time, we also realize that sometimes divorce may be an appropriate step to take. I don't know that I would ever say it's the required step to take. Again, maybe in instances of incest or something like that could be required. But I don't know if it's the required step to take in the same way that Jesus' listeners would have thought. Divorce is not at all preferable, but there are instances where a believer might initiate a divorce and not be guilty of adultery. So, what are those scenarios? How does this idea work itself out practically? What's the, when is that appropriate or permissible? Uh, again, I'm sorry, I wish we could get into it now. Uh, I, you're probably done already anyways. This is a heavy, heavy sermon. Uh, so, you'll have to come back tonight at 6 to work that all out because I don't have time to spell it out now. If that interests you or concerns you, I'd encourage you to be here tonight at 6. And again, I'll spell out the specifics in detail. In the meantime, let's close with prayer.